Hello, my name is Josh, one of the pastors here. And uh, before I was a pastor, uh, before I was this fuddy-duddy, middle-aged, married man with three kids, and uh, I, I had this uh, kind of ultra-hipster season of my life, where I was living uh, downtown Columbus, uh, I rode my fixie to this uh, ultra-hipster coffee shop, you know, back when it was like, hipster coffee shops were like too cool to smile or be nice to anyone, you know, because it's like, the coffee's so good that I can be mean to you or something like that, and... Um, <laughs> I was a part-time worship leader at a church plant, so I fancied myself, you know, some, somewhat of a musician, and I had a Subaru and a dog and uh, all that. So it was, it was, I, w- I went full hipster uh, in this season of my life. And let me tell you, it was a pretty uh, angsty season of my life uh, because my life felt like waiting. Like I, I desperately wanted to be married, uh, and I was pretty confident that God had called me to be a pastor but I just felt completely like helpless or stuck or confused, powerless to make any of those things happen. So like my whole life just felt like a waiting room. And then, and then I met Camille and she completed me and everything was, no, <laughs> Camille is a huge gift to me and it's, and it's, it's not, you know, it takes two to tango. But we actually had a, a first couple uh, uh, rough years of marriage that also felt like waiting where we, we saw this beautiful call to marriage and we loved each other, but it was really hard and we were waiting for God to do the work in us that he designed marriage to do in us. And then I could talk about the two years that Camille and I waited to get pregnant uh, with our first child, you know, the month after month of, of sadness and waiting and confusion. Uh, but, you know, now, and at some point, I think for a lot of us, you know, all the unknowns of our lives, all the unknowns, like who we marry, how many kids we have, where we live, what job we do, are no longer questions, but now they're facts of our lives. Uh, the waiting for all these givens, all these facts in our lives that we're so curious about, you know, for most of our 20s are, are answered. The, the, the questions are answered. There's, there's no more big events. There's no more changes to wait for. And I would say, arguably, that's when the real waiting begins. Without big life events or changes to kind of pin our hopes for satisfaction or transformation or something, we're just faced with that, you know, that, that ache for eternity that's in all of our souls, and we wait. We're faced with our own brokenness, our compulsions, the reoccurring sins that Pastor Mike talked about last week, without any, you know, convenient solutions. Like, oh, when I finally get a spouse, I'll be like this. When I finally get that job or that house or have kids or whatever, when I finally get here, uh, and we're just fate, like all those questions, all those things are there, and we're just, we have no choice but to either wait on God in that, in that space, or we could choose to try to avoid that space, that void, and numb it and escape it with, you know, food, work, or phones, whatever. I think you could argue that the entire life of a Jesus follower is one of waiting, especially when we look at our, like, character, you know, our emotional lived experience of life with God on the earth, this side of the redemption of all things. Uh, we, we look at scripture and we say, I, I say this a lot, Jesus, you came to give me life to the full. You, you, gave me, you came to give us rest for our weary souls. Like where, where is that? Paul says there's a peace that surpasses understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ. It's beautiful language. Like, any day now, how long will we wait? So the question I want us to ask today is, how do we walk by faith when it seems like God is not fulfilling his promises? And the answer the main thing I want us to see is to wait. To see that in this passage, I think there's a beautiful invitation to wait on 
God, choosing to walk by faith in the places where we feel lack, pain, stuck. And this is about as countercultural to our day and age as we can get. Like, we literally never have to wait anymore. Like, even if we are waiting, like in line or at the dentist, we do what? We can pull out our phone and be entertained or get stuff done or, or whatever. Like, we literally never have to wait anymore. It's crazy. But it's not true uh, to how God, I think, designed the human experience to, to work and how he works in the human experience. And in, in this passage, when it comes to waiting that we're going to look at, there's good news and bad news that I think informs our waiting, gives us a picture for waiting. The good news is that we see that God is always faithful. God always does what he said he's going to do. I just was like soaking in Sarah's line all week. God has made laughter like anybody wants to get a tattoo verse, like that, that, that needs to come back. Uh, God has made laughter for me. But we also see that God doesn't fulfill these promises in the timing that we might think is reasonable. It seems like there, there's a gap. And I hope that seeing our always faithful God do what he said he will do will bolster our courage, will fuel our strength to wait as we see who God is in his word as he's revealed it. But in this passage, we also see the pain and brokenness, uh, broken relationships that come from strategies humans employ to avoid waiting on God, to speed along God's work in our lives. It's pain and brokenness in relationships that we see echoes throughout history and even generations. And I hope it sobers all of us to see the dangers of not waiting on God, of taking things into our own hands and trying to meet our needs on our own and our own ways and our own schemes. So both the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of people refusing to wait on God, to wait in the gap for God, are seen here. And again, my hope is that we'll hear God as our Father saying, wait, wait on me. Wait with expectancy and hope because he's a God who's faithful, whose steadfast love will never fail us, who always does what he says he will do. And who, who can, a God who can, if we let him redeem the waiting in our lives in beautiful ways. I haven't heard many sermons on this idea of waiting, but it's all over scripture. David, very much in a pit in Psalm 27, says this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That always pierces me. Like, if you saw the line, be strong, take courage, like you'd think David's about to go what? Like, charge a hill or tackle Goliath. But what, is it? what comes before it? Wait on the Lord. It requires strength and courage to wait on the Lord. Or Isaiah 40 uh, the, the famous, you know, mounting up like wings like eagles that are supposed to help remember the Titans play football or something. It's not the context. Even youth shall, grow, shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Who is it that soars on eagles' wings? E- Oops. <laughs> Sorry. Eagles' wings. <laughs> Those who wait on the Lord. There's this connection between strength and courage, being strengthened and waiting on the Lord. We see in scripture, this is like trying to set a a baseline, like define normal for us. There's not something weird or abnormal going on if we feel like we're waiting. 
But instead, we're just joining with God's people throughout, throughout Scripture. And here in, in our church family, we're joining with brothers, brothers and sisters, waiting on the Lord together, saying, come Lord Jesus. And we're encouraging each other in the waiting. So let's dive in to our text here. Some fun stuff and some sad stuff to look at. Verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. The promised child is born. If you've missed our previous sermons in this series, this child was promised uh, 25 years ago. Uh, We've been in this book 25 years. No. He was promised back in September, our time, 25 years ago, Abraham and Sarah's time. And what a wild ride that 25 years has been. We've seen Abraham twice in the words of esteemed Pastor Mike, pimp out his wife to other kings. It tickles me that, that Mike said that, I love it. It's not, he's, not, he's not wrong. Uh, we've seen a, a, a wife get, encourage her husband to sleep with another woman to get a child. We've seen uh, an entire region of cities be wiped out by fire and sulfur. It's been a mess. But here we are. The fulfillment of the promise is completed as the Lord said. Look at verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a feast on the the day that Isaac was weaned. I just want to soak in this for a minute. There's so many hard things in, in the story of Abraham, but this is just a really sweet passage. These are really rich times in the life of Abraham and Sarah of celebration and joy, of the fulfillment of waiting. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. I mean, just like imagine, you know, yourself in Sarah's shoes, like in a, in a culture that, you know, maybe values kids and childbearing 100 times more than we do. You know, just imagine being barren, aching, waiting for a child your whole life. Being in your 90s, imagine, you know, feeling your body get past the age of childbearing without a kid and just the deep, deep pain there. And then imagine waiting for 25 years after the God of the universe promised that you would have a child. Like, it's, it's hard to wait, you know, when you wonder, it will it or won't it, you know? Like, the, there's not a, like, promise of God audibly saying this will happen. But it's another thing to be told it will happen and then have to wait. And after all that, we see Sarah... This, this old lady just laughing, guffawing, belly laughing. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears about my lot in life will laugh over me, join with me in laughter. It's a sweet moment of a promise fulfilled, a sweet moment of like redeemed motherhood, of God doing what he said he would do. And then Abraham, the happy father, throws this huge feast when Isaac, the child, is weaned. So, you know, it's a one or two years in, the child's weaned, and we have this rich, happy, sweet season in the life of Abraham and Sarah, just being overjoyed to be parents and their child. God's faithfulness coming through, seeing the child be healthy, and inviting their friends to have a big party and celebrate. This is who our God is. A promised son is born, and there's a big feast. He always fulfills his promise. 
I just want the beauty of this moment, of God's faithfulness and him doing it, doing what he said he would do, encourage us in our waiting. And if you're like me, you see in scripture that, you know, that breakdown, like Jesus says his followers would receive power from on high. So why do I feel so stuck and powerless? Where's this, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the spirit that is supposed to happen because this, this spirit is living in my body. Jesus said, he would never leave me or forsake me. Why do I feel so alone? And of course, a lot of the, those are things like in Scripture, like things that the Bible shows. A lot of our waiting is, is for things that God you know, hasn't promised. Like we're, you know, we're not explicitly promised a spouse or kids or health until we die or, or, or whatever. Before I was married, I, I, I would be in this place where I was like, I know what my soul longs for is God, but right now all I feel is the devastating loneliness of my singleness. Just crying out to God, either give me what I want or be enough yourself. I can't just sit here. If you're enough for me, why don't I feel it? In those questions, in those painful places of waiting, see God's word showing us again that he is faithful. He always does what he says. He will complete the work that he said he would do in you. And listen, he often does that work, fulfills his promises in the waiting, not in spite of the waiting. The waiting's not an interruption to the work of God in your life. It's often the work of God in your life that we can either choose to show up to and receive or avoid. Because of God's faithfulness, we will, I believe we will all be able to say, like Sarah, God has made laughter for me. This is the God of the Bible. But our story takes a dark twist in verse 9. But Sarah saw the son, Hagar, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian woman, who, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. And <clears throat> most uh, commentators would say that the word translated there is, you know, it's kind of more of mocking or whatever. And it's, you know, knowing humans, it's not hard to imagine. Ishmael would have been in his teens or at this point in the story. He would have been an only child, you know, first in line to be the heir of Abraham. All this stuff. And now this baby's born and there's all this hype and... You know, I'm sure there was a lot of emotions, a lot of feels going around this, this uncertainty and stuff. So he's, he's mocking the baby or, or whatever. And Sarah's triggered in a big way and wants Abraham to banish Hagar and Ishmael. This is a very important warning for us here if we're willing to see it. The human heart is so quick to take God's good things and make them ultimate. Or take God's gifts and think that it's on me to protect and defend and sustain. She's allowing the gift that God gave her, Isaac, to rise to a place where it obliterates the ability to love people. James says it like this, What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your evil desires at war within you? Evil desires are often good desires. They get too strong. So we might love our job, love the calling that God's given us, the work that he's given us. That's a good thing. That's a gift. But if we begin to love it too much or depend on it to give us the security or validation that only God ultimately can give, then, then what? You know, we, we fight with their spouses about how much we work or we, we can't love our kids well because they're just a constant interruption to getting our needs met through work. 
Tim Keller des- describes an evolution in Sarah's laughter here. We have this, this beautiful laughter at God's provision. God has made laughter for me, turning into this like laughter of like addiction or fixation. Like think you know, uh, like Gollum with the ring. This kind of like maniacal laughter about his precious. It's, there's nothing beautiful or nice about it. It's like this this addictive, uh, compulsive kind of laughter. And inevitably, the laughter of addiction leads to pain and destruction. Verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not pleased because of the boy, or displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away as she departed and wandered in the and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So this is pretty hard to chew on this week as I was soaking in. Like why is God condoning, you know, banishing this woman, making her a single mom in the wilderness? And I'm I'm not sure there's a super tidy, airtight explanation that will satisfy our 21st century sensibilities, but one commentator pointed out that this is God looking out both for Isaac and his plan for redemption and Ishmael. This allows Isaac to be Abraham's heir according to the promise, uh, but it's also for the welfare of Ishmael. I mean, on one hand, like, I kind of would want to get out of Sarah's house too. Like, if she's doing the, like, my precious with Isaac, like, I don't want to be around that. Um, But it's clear that, like, God is going to be with Ishmael. Even though it wasn't part of God's original plan, his promise to Abraham to make his offspring as like numerous as the sands of the sea, it extends to, uh, to, to Ishmael as well. This is a very interesting picture of how, God, how God's promises and human choices are interconnected and how God responds to human choices. There's interplay we see, uh, and we see that God... God has given humans agency, the ability to make decisions. And to be clear, God's purposes can never be thwarted. But the details and components and methods and nitty-gritty of how his purposes are carried out, they can be influenced by humans. It's, a, it's just a, a breathtaking reality of Scripture that sometimes we miss because we love God's sovereignty so much, but there is this interplay uh, between our, our volition, our agency, and how God moves his grand plan of redemption forward in the mess. And so here we are, following a single mother and her son wandering around the wilderness together. Why are they out there? It's because instead of waiting on God, Sarah, aching for a child, thinks through the options and offers another woman for her husband to sleep with to get a baby. Because of Abraham and Sarah's scheme to make God's promised heir come in their own strength, in their own timeline, because they were tired of waiting. Verse 21, or 15, sorry. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up. Lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. 
Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is a pretty sad moment where a mother thinks that she is just going to see her son die, or is trying to not see her son die. But in the sadness and just like the not rightness of the story, I don't want us to miss who God is and what he does. He responds to the brokenness of the situation. He hears the cries of the oppressed and the downtrodden. He is near to the brokenhearted. From this place of desperation, Hagar hears from God, sees God meet her needs, and sees her son grow up. God was with the boy. He grew up and became a great nation. From, for, for a mom, from Hagar's point of view, this is pretty good. This is redemptive. God is compassionate. You know, Hagar was a slave woman with like no rights, who was like given to a master, to, you know, to be a surrogate mom or whatever. It's like all kinds of levels of oppression and brokenness and not rightness. Uh, he's not afraid to interact and step into the mess and care for the oppressed. And I, w- I wish I could just tie a bow on it and leave it right there. Like God's nice and good to the oppressed, but like it's a little mur- murkier than that because we got to at least mention that you know the Quran uh, calls Ishmael the, the forefather of, of the Muslim people, the, tri- the tribes of Islam. They, they, in, at least in part, the entire reality of Islam in our world today can at least in part be traced back to Abraham and Sarah's scheme to avoid waiting on God. So just think about the millennia the, 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 uh, of conflict, confusion, extremism, along with just the normal run-of-the-mill darkness of Islam. This is a hard truth to swallow. Ishmael is preserved, and we are, here we are a millennia later, still seeing the effects of the story. I, I'm not quite sure how to tidy it up for us, but I, but I want the gravitas of that, the weight of Abraham and Sarah's choices they made to avoid waiting on God to hit us hard. This is a stark warning for us. Not only is waiting on God the way to receive the laughter that he made for us, but refusing to wait for God is where we see all kinds of pain and confusion that can linger for a long, long, long time. I mean, on a small scale, this is, you know, dating the person that you know you shouldn't date because they like you and they're in front of you. And... You're so lonely, it hurts. And then we carry baggage from that relationship for the rest of our lives. This is jerking your family around, your young kids around, job to job, because there's no place that pays enough or makes you feel important enough, or there's always something better, and you see, you, you see all the, the, the chaos and frazzleness in your kids throughout their lives, and they pass it on to your grandkids, because you were chasing your idols and dragging them through all the stuff. This is a warning to us about the seriousness of, of trying to meet our own needs. All the way back to the fundamental, the fundamental sin, the original sin, which is reaching out, grabbing the fruit to meet the needs that only God can provide, what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And I think Pastor Mike said, I don't know if this was in conversation or a sermon, I forget, but, but the, the verb in Hebrew that is used for Abraham going in to Hagar is the same verb used in Genesis 3 when they reach for the fruit. Like it's like reaching for things that only God can do, and it ruins everything. The good news is you will not, you cannot stop God's faithfulness. If you are in Christ, you are safe and secure and you belong to him. We see this in the text. 
Despite Abraham and Sarah's bad choice, the promised child has come. God still makes laughter for her and provides it according to what he said. There's no amount of sin or scheming that can stop the God of the universe, the tidal wave of his steadfast love and goodness and mercy to accomplish his redemptive purposes in human history. I'm not saying that. But the laughter in our lived experience in that story of redemption depends on the degree to which we're willing to trust him and obey him and walk by faith as we wait on God. To close, I want to look at just three practical questions about, about waiting on God that ho- hopefully will lead to some you know, application for us and uh, ultimately will lead to Jesus. The first one, how do, we, how do we wait on God? What does this like really look like? And I think we get a, a cool, uh, a helpful picture of uh, Hagar doing this in verse 16. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And this is it. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. These three things, sitting, lifting up her voice, and weeping. This is a a helpful three-step plan to wait on God. To be clear, this is descriptive of what she did, not prescriptive to us. This is not like, thus says the Lord. Everybody do these three steps or whatever. But I think it's, it's helpful. It's a good reflex to have when we're at the end of our rope, tired of waiting on God. First, she sat. She was still. She quit walking and wandering and trying to solve the problem herself. Walking by faith through waiting on God, for most of us, is going to require us to slow down. I mean, by definition, like we're going to wait on God in a hurry or something. It doesn't make sense. Be still. Our busyness, our frenetic problem solving, our job searching, our online dating, our voracious appetite to just avoid the void through Netflix or our phones or whatever, or food, will significantly reduce our ability to receive from God the promise, the work he wants to do, the, ma- the laughter that he made for us. Real plainly, God invites us to do this in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Let's do that. Next, she lifted up her voice. And we see all throughout the Bible that the people who experience God and his provision are the people who pour out their hearts to them, hearts to him. They are brutally honest with their emotions, with their desires. They shout it out to God. Psalm 142 shows this super clearly. A mascal of David when he was in the cave. That's the intro to this psalm. Like he's literally in a cave, running from his life after being promised to become king. And what does he say? With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. There's the man after God's heart, complaining to God. God can take it. It's deeply formative to our souls, our hearts, uh, as humans, to move towards relationships in times of trouble. Like on a small scale, children do this all the time, shamelessly, beautifully, you know, we tell Johnny not to do something, and he does it, and gets hurt, and he runs to us for comfort, shamelessly. Become like a child to receive the kingdom. We, we can pour out our complaints to God. It forms our souls to complain to God because we're practicing the truth, the doctrine that I think most of us would say we believe, that only God can satisfy us, only God can, can solve this problem in my life. We're rehearsing with our brains. We're wiring our neural pathways in such a way that, that, that we have inst- the instinct in this emotional pain is to run to our Father. Just like children. They're happy. 
tell mom and dad. If they're sad, tell mom and dad. Our emotions become these relational points of connection that cultivate deep intimacy with God, which brings to the last thing. Hagar wept. When was the last time that that you wept? I would say I probably cry maybe three or four times a year, more if we're remodeling our house, but that's, that's that's another sermon. But it's always, always a gift to me. Like, you know, if, if, if it's not something you kind of like make happen. I mean, maybe if you're an actress or something. But it, it's like a release, you know, where like by the mercy of God, I get past like trying to control everything or control my emotions and just relax into what I'm feeling with God. Psalm 56 describes this intimacy of God with our tears like this. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Christian, God sees your tears. The, the picture we get here is he like collects them. They're written down. He knows about them. He's with you in them. Weeping is not just for, for those people, women and children, or if you're a woman that prides herself on not being emotional, you know, those other women, the chick flick women, whatever. Of course, we all have different levels of emotion and ways of expressing them or whatever. But the point is to know them and express them with God, to God. In order to express them, you, you have to know them. Like, to, to what degree can we name the emotion that we are feeling? To what degree do you have the time and space in your life to, like, come home to, like, relax into those emotions and not distract ourselves with whatever your distraction of choice is? Or to what degree do we have enough, have we experienced grace enough, enough safety in the gospel to, to express the emotion without guilt or shame? Have you ever noticed how hard it is for Christians to say they're angry? You know, we, don't, we don't get angry, we just get frustrated. I mean, it took me like two years of marriage counseling to finally admit that I was like angry about stuff. Uh, but there's, there's so much comfort and healing in this. It's one of the most robust applications of the gospel. The gospel says that if we're in Christ, God is our Father. He looks on us with delight, with compassion, with empathy and understanding, no matter what we've done, because it's Christ's righteousness that makes us lovely. And so we live into that gospel truth by letting, letting some of the ugly show, letting it be met with God's, God's steadfast love. The next question is, what, is, what does the waiting life look like? So if we're looking at sitting, some stillness, we're looking at uh, prayer, pouring out our hearts to God, looking at like emotions, sharing our emotions with God. Uh, to say it another way, what kind of life or life rhythms would make these three things po- possible? So a small, and essentially it's going to come down to these like nuts and bolts thing. Like a small example of intentional waiting in my life uh, was realizing that my habit of reading novels in bed at night was really an attempt to just like, on my own strength, find some like comfort and quiet my monkey mind so I could fall asleep. You know, as like all the the emotions and stuff of the day like burble up to the surface in those quiet moments in bed, trying to fall asleep. I would like read until I, you know, couldn't keep my eyes open and I felt like God inviting me to kind of like put him to the test a little bit. You're not supposed to do that. But, you know, he invited me to try him. Uh, You know, just like, I I am the God of peace that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Like, give me a shot, you know. So I tried, you know, like reading a psalm and then just like being still before God and and letting him put me to sleep. Like letting him, you didn't like come into my thoughts and monkey mind and answer all my questions and make everything okay. It's just like with his presence, with his peace, give him space to do that, quiet my heart and mind. 
It was like not like one and done thing. It was super hard for a while, and still, you know, to this day, I'll listen for a while and then just still pick up a book. Like this, there's no like shame or sin or guilt or shoulds or oughts. It's just like I want to give God space to be what He said He would be to me. A lot of you are already doing this stuff. I mean, you guys are all doing it this morning. This is a this is a great lifestyle of waiting on God, of like coming to the gathering. We're like, look, you guys are sitting. You're stopping. You're sitting. You're hearing the word preached. You're, you're singing songs. That's a great way of pouring out our hearts to God. Like, I don't want to undermine the beauty of just faithful participation in a Sunday worship gathering. And a lot, of, a lot of the rhythms, I mean, the entire ministry plan at our church is set up to help facilitate this. Like our life transformation groups, where we, we process feelings, emotions, struggles, anxieties, and with brothers and sisters that can speak the gospel over each other. Um, last Sunday at her prayer and worship night, it was a beautiful moment where someone asked for prayer because she just like seen so much like death and pain and destruction. It was feeling angry. It was like blew, blew my mind. She like confessed feeling angry and just invited her church family to lay hands on her and pray for her in that place. It was a sweet, beautiful moment uh, where now you can, we can receive God's love through God's people in whom his spirit dwells. But to wait well requires intentionality. Rhythms that we work into our lives that, that I think personally, in my experience, like we let have some like authority. Like we don't do them when we feel like it. We, we do them like we, we trust the process. We let, we let them form us so that when the storms do come, when pain do, does come, we're not like falling through time and space. We read our psalms. We listen to God. We mourn with our brothers and sisters. We show up to the gathering and sit quietly with with the church. And waiting requires radically different priorities and expectation than the world has. This is like fundamentally the opposite, like two different ways of being. Because the world, the way of the devil is what? Like, is God really good? Did, did God really say that? Like, reach out and meet your needs by yourself. Grab the fruit of the tree. Get our needs and desires met apart from God. This is what the surrounding culture would tell us to do and even celebrate us for doing. And it ruins everything. The last question is, what are we waiting for? Isaac, the promised son to Abraham and Sarah, points us to Jesus, the promised son of God, fulfilling God's promise to redeem his people back into life with him. First Peter says it like this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, into the, into the laughter that God has made for us. The truer and better Isaac came in order to bring us to God, Jesus that we might live with God, experiencing him as our Father under his loving, faithful rule of our lives. Jesus has already come. He's already suffered once for sins, uh, but we're still waiting, right, to be fully brought to God. There's an already, he's already come, but we're not yet fully in the kingdom. And mercifully, God gives us a picture of how the story ends, no matter what, no matter what kind of Hagar-like situations that we've created in our sin, in our efforts to try to meet our needs on our own. Uh, friend, this will happen. I invite you to just close your eyes. Let this fill your hearts and minds. I'll read this over you. This is Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The question for us then, friend, is will we walk by faith and wait on God? Trust him, obey him, and wait for him to make laughter for us that will last forever. Let me pray. Oh God, I praise you for being a faithful God who always does what he says. I praise you for uh, this incredible gift to see you working throughout human history, working in spite of and in the midst of broken things. Father, I pray for all the hurting hearts here in our church family that are waiting, waiting for you, waiting for satisfaction, waiting for different life events. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength and the power of your spirit to wait, uh, wait for you uh, with hope, that we would show up to the work. Forgive us when we try to avoid the, avoid the work of waiting, and may we just repent and turn to you and sit with you in that space. Let you be the comfort that you say that you are. Father, I pray that we as church family would, would wait to, well together, grieving with people together, and when you do fulfill your promises, as you've said, that we'd be quick to share it with others, celebrate, sing, and rejoice. Father, may our hearts and minds be filled with this picture of the redemption of all things, that you will wipe away every tear and make all the sad things come untrue. Jesus name. Amen.